Hi, and welcome to Writing on Wednesdays, a podcast about building a healthy and sustainable writing process from beginning to end, but mostly in the middle. I'm Nicole Rokas, an author, speaker, and writing coach in Toronto. And I'm Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician living in St. Louis. In the last episode, we talked about what to do when writing isn't your day job, how to carve out time, how to make progress on projects, and in general, how to feel like a writer even when it's not your full-time job. But today, we're turning the tables and talking about the unique challenges and strategies of writing when it is your full-time job, or at least part of it. Though we should say that many facets of this topic will apply to writers across the board. Anyway, plus Sarah's favorite way to transcribe interviews. So get your pens ready, pull up a chair, and join us for a weekly Wednesday writing date. Before we get into the thick of it, though, let's talk about our summer break plans. We're going on holiday. We both have traveling coming up, and we're going to take a break from writing on Wednesdays for the rest of July and August. I hope all of y'all are having fun and interesting summer adventures as well. So we'll be able to come back in September and talk about all the things we were up to during the summer. So let's get right into the thick of it now, the part of the show where we focus in on one idea, strategy, or topic as it pertains to the writing process. So Sarah, we both have jobs that involve writing, and I'll just give an outline of how writing is a significant part of my full-time job, which boils down to two ways. The first, as I mentioned in the last big episode, was that a small but growing proportion of my income actually comes from my personal writing and related activities. So in the last 12 months, I'd say that about a third of my overall income has come from my own writing and speaking, which is kind of cool. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so that's one area where writing is, quote unquote, my job. And then the other area is that my current day job actually revolves around writing and communications. I was recently hired as the communications coordinator for a nonprofit. Even before then, though, most of my professional activities involved writing of some kind. So my current job involves lots of writing. And at the moment, thinking about writing, thinking about um, communications, I'm helping the organization. Mm -hmm. And communication strategy. Yeah, I'm helping the organization develop a communication strategy. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. But this kind of writing is totally different than my personal writing The mediums and genres are different. I'm writing things like press releases and newsletters and, you know, draft correspondences and providing feedback on website copy and things like that. So it's completely different than, you know, the nonfiction books and blog posts and podcasts that I write personally. Uh, For this episode, personally, I am going to be speaking more to this second area, the unique challenges and strategies for writing when it's like part of your paid employment for a company or organization that's not just you yourself. Where you have to have other people involved in the decision-making process. Yeah, because I think that Mm -hmm. this writing has a completely different feel and set of motivations than Mm -hmm. our personal writing. Yeah, it does. It does. So on my end, a lot of the stuff that's under more under the umbrella of my personal writing is still under the umbrella of my job. And if you're curious about that, you can listen to the last episode. But um, the writing that I'm talking about today is stuff that is very explicitly written for the very narrow audience of my job. And that means things that are show notes, essentially, these things, these things about music that go into service bulletins. I write website copy, I write social media posts, and I write collaboratively with my colleagues. 
And I think that the kinds of things that I do that are really explicitly part of my job are the kinds of writings, the kind of writing that a lot of people do, and they don't think of of it as even writing, or they don't Mm -hmm. think of themselves as a writer, even though they do all these things for their job. So I'm, I'm really speaking to that angle of most of us do these kinds of things, you know, write the website copy, write the social media post. A lot of us do those things for our jobs, um, write white papers, reports, those kinds of things. Especially if we are or consider ourselves writers, because we tend to mm-hmm. gravitate towards communications, rich positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we often get given those things because we know how to write a paragraph. And so yeah. we get given the given that. Yeah. Um, we get assigned those kinds of jobs. Yep. Yeah. So we're going to talk about writing for our jobs today through the lens of four different challenges, four areas that might feel a little bit difficult or tricky. But we're going to start off with an overarching approach or strategy to this whole topic. Yeah, I think the the big strategy here is you need to find your why or your purpose. Uh, In order to really address the challenges that we're going to bring up, I think that you have to be able to dig deep and know why you are working in the job that you're working in. Why is this job important to you? What's your purpose within your company or your organization? And I mean, like, what's your personal sense of purpose? But I also mean in more of a broader organizational scope, like what role do you actually play in your organization? What makes you important and valuable? Um, What are the ways you hope to grow professionally and what's your personal interest in the cause of the organization? Things like that. I think you have to know why you're there in mm-hmm. order to be able to um, address some of the challenges that we're going to bring up. Yeah. So from here, we're going to talk about four challenges. And uh, for each challenge, we'll name a strategy or two. And we should say that not all of these challenges apply to everybody. But if you do a significant amount of writing for your job, or even if you just do a lot of writing in general, I think at least a few of these challenges are going to apply to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at some of these and thinking, huh, these also apply to freelance writing. (laughs) Yeah. So the first challenge that I see is that you don't get your company's brand or mission well enough for the writing you do in your workplace to feel intentional, at least not in a way that you would understand your own personal writing or brand. Um, you know, when I do my writing, it's like, I know what I want my brand to be, even if I haven't ever sat down and like clearly identified that just because I've been along for the whole process. I have sort of my own organizational knowledge about my writing built into you my have brain. Your whole life history. Yeah. <laughs> you know who you are. Exactly. When you're working for a company or organization, you're coming in And it may not feel very intuitive for you. And you may be wondering, like, someone tells you to write something and you're like, well, okay, how do I do that? What am I supposed to say? What do they want me to say? What do people want to hear? What tone am I going to take? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, you and that all it gets in, in a workplace that gets negotiated across, like, horizontally across other you know, boards or colleagues or stakeholders, but it also gets negotiated vertically over time, like organizational knowledge builds up and best practices build up. And they may not actually be explicitly formulated anywhere. And, and you're many times they're not explicitly yeah, formulated. Very many times they're not. So one suggestion that I have, if you ever feel that way, when you're asked to do writing, 
is kind of ask around and determine whether your company or organization has a written communications strategy. This is an actual document. It spells out what um, organization's mission is, what their vision is, who their audience segments are, um, the different you know, best practices for different uh, written materials that go out like newsletters, emails, you know, the elevator pitch of your organization. It's all sorts of, it's it's just an at-a-glance document that should make sense to most staff members of an organization. And it's like a mini handbook of how to communicate about your organization to your, your different audience segments. Um, if there is a communications strategy, sit down with it and you figure out, is it actually helpful for you? Is it comprehensible for you? It might need an update. And if you're a newcomer, you're kind of in a position to voice that. If there is no... Yeah, because the goal is that this document can really speak to you. And exactly. It should be something that you can understand. Exactly. If there is not a communication strategy, I recommend uh, pulling some strings or you know showing some initiative and either offering to draft one yourself or sort of pointing it out to the powers that be that this would be a really helpful resource to have. It does take some time. I'm in the process of drafting this with the organization that I work with. For all of these reasons, I just felt like, you know, to do my job while well, I need a communication strategy. And it's a, it's a lot more time than I realized it would take, but I think it's going to be really valuable in the long run, not just for myself, but all of my colleagues. For you as the communications coordinator, this kind of thing is like you should be doing this this because you need to be leading other people in how they communicate. Yeah, it fits perfectly within my job description. Mm -hmm. Um, But even if I, like I have had other positions within this organization and the things that I'm finding valuable about a communication strategy are things I've always wished that I could, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, so it it works out that, that I can do it in my wheelhouse. But uh, if I had been staying at the other positions for a longer period of time, I might have just, you know, shown some initiative and asked to draft it myself. (laughs) So this is what happened when I began my job last year. I work in a small organization. There is no communications strategy that's clearly articulated. So, and it's it's so small that I don't know that it would be even really be helpful. It would be like, if I created such a thing, it would be me telling two other people what to do, which is not my job. Um, So what I did when I got there last summer is I read through a ton of previous materials. I read bylaws, I read organizational structure, I read historical documents. And when I started doing things like social media posts, I just went on the social media platform and read weeks worth of material just to get a a sense of the tone that my colleagues used in their posts, because I felt like it worked well. And it's not that I need to duplicate their tone exactly. But I felt that that was a helpful way for me to get used to how how things had been done in the organization. Yeah, it's kind of like learning to speak a language and you're, you know, reading these documents and learning learning the words that get used, the keywords, mm-hmm. the tone, all of mm-hmm. that. I found yeah. a really helpful document when I started this job. It's by a woman named Kivi LaRoe Miller and it's called The First 100 Things to Do in the First 100 Days of starting a communications related position. It's particularly Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's particularly aimed at um people who are hired into nonprofit organizations. And I haven't done all or even most of the things that she recommends, but it's a really helpful document to have. And I'll link to the show notes. It's just a free download. Um, 
but it's talking kind of about what you're talking about. And it spells out, you know, the types of documents you should ask to have access to and read. Because if you're new to this kind of work, you might not even know, you know, what documents organizations or churches typically tend to have that are available to colleagues to read, to, to learn mm-hmm. the language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have to rely on people to say like, oh, you should read these things. Yeah. You should know about this. Yeah. So the next challenge is, um, let's say you do understand the brand of your employer and you kind of have learned to speak the language, but you feel limited because you don't have full creative license over the content you create. You can't just say, oh, I want to write a blog post on my company's website on this topic because that's what excites me right now. Instead, the needs of your employer dictate what you'll create and what the overall message will be, who your audience will be, all of that. To me, this strategy really speaks to people who freelance also, because if you're continually pitching things, you are having to to really narrow what you're doing to fit the tone of the magazine or the newspaper and to fit the topics that editors want to have. Yeah, or especially, you know, I've done some freelance writing where the person who's hiring me, I don't even pitch to them. They tell me what they want. They want, you know, five fitness articles on these precise topics um, and you have little to no, you know, license mm-hmm. over the You overall. just need to deliver on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the strategy that I think is important is to recognize that, like, to see these kinds of expectations as a grid or a framework and to recognize the fact that what you bring to the table is still your creativity and unique perspective. And it's still possible to exercise that within the framework you're given. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're still you. Yeah. You know, one example is, let's say where you work, they have a regular newsletter and you're in charge of putting that out. And the company has been doing their newsletter a certain way for a long time. And you feel like that's very stale or it bo- it's boring to you. You don't really feel excited when you start to work on the newsletter. You know, ask yourself, is it is it just that you don't feel, you know, motivated by the creative demands that are being asked of you? Or is that is it that something actually needs to change about the newsletter? Like it, it actually is stale and your readers might think it's stale. And your um, sort of creative voice as a writer is a form of expertise honing in on that. And that's actually why you're bored. And maybe you can just suggest, you know, suggest some ways to spice things up. A lot of times I've realized that what appears to be these kind of monolithic policies are actually just status quo things that... Here's how we've done it. Yeah, that other employees, let's say, in the organization, um, for whatever reason, just haven't been able to take the time to breathe new life into it or to look outside the box, to rethink how things are done. And maybe that's something that you can do as a writer. I've been doing something like that lately, trying out different modes of writing, because I felt that what I was doing was just dumping a bunch of information on people. And I I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to write it because it was so boring. So I've I've been experimenting with, hmm, why don't I try this? Why don't I try this other thing to see if, if it's more interesting for me, I feel like it will be more interesting for other people. Yeah, I've, I've, in developing this communication strategy, um, I've been sort of siloed in that task and I haven't been able to like really spread my wings and throw my full creative arsenal at the kinds of content that have to get (laughs) created. But, you know, 
One thing that I think would be cool is to incorporate more first-person stories in our newsletters, where in the past our newsletters have been more like just organizational information and important dates and here's what we did last month and here's what we're doing this month. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not very human and there's not a lot of storytelling. And, you know, my boss was like, oh, we would love to have more storytelling. We just haven't gotten around to it. We haven't been able to. We haven't been able to figure out a way to do that while staying on point. Sometimes you make a template and then it's easier to just fill in the template than to recreate yeah. new things. And if you don't have a lot of time, then you don't have a lot of time or energy to put into yeah. creating something new or different. Yeah. Yeah. So the third challenge is, um, and I don't know if this will appeal to anybody or if it's just me, but at the end of the day, the writing you do for your job isn't yours. It's legally, it's actually the intellectual property of your company or your organization or whoever you're working for. And you may have signed a contract to that effect. I know I did. But even if you didn't, it's sort of understood that this doesn't belong to you. Um, yeah. With with the caveat that for some organizations, like for instance, I work for a church, that's not always the case. That also um, for people in academia, if you write a book as part of your academic right. work, the book is still your intellectual property. So, But most of the time, most of the time yeah. it is the company's intellectual property. Yeah. And so um, for some people, I think that that could actually, you know, intensify their motivation and create more of a, especially if you're familiar with Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies um, and you know the term obligers, I think for obligers that actually could heighten their motivation mm, yeah, and creativity. For somebody else. Yeah. yeah. For me, um, one thing I have to watch is this tends to sort of downplay my motivation and my intention because in, in the back of my mind, I, I think of it as well. Um, not that I would ever you know, think about crossing any ethical lines or anything, but it's just when I actually sit down to do the writing, I don't quite feel that spark under my butt to do the writing because Mm, it's not my writing. And so I don't have to take ownership for when I fail. I don't have to take ownership for when I don't get it done on time um, or if it's not as perfectionistic as I would normally do if my name were on it. So one thing that I have to remind myself of, and this is the strategy, is that Um, just because your name isn't on it and it doesn't quote unquote belong to you there in some ways there's more at stake for the kinds of writing you do when it's in service of your employer than just your own book or your own blog post. Um, You know, because there's in some ways there's more room to um, I don't want to say more room for failure but there's more things that you have to keep in mind. There's more things you can't say. I feel this a lot in my job, and I have thought so much more about how I speak in the role in my how I speak as part of my organization than I do for my own personal writing. And it, some of that is because well, I know myself better. But to me, a lot of this is that I have to speak to a very particular audience in ways that I hope that they can hear. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm doing social media posts or when I'm writing things. Um, in service booklets or what have you, I really have to think, how am I speaking to these particular people? And some of this is because this is a church, this is a faith-based organization. So I really have to think about what are these particular people's beliefs, their collective beliefs, and how do I speak to them, not in ways that contradict my personal beliefs, but really just how can I put the focus on them and not on me? And how do I, how do I make sure I'm, I'm going to be heard by this particular group of people with these shared beliefs? Yeah. Working for an organization has really 
taught me what it means to speak to an audience because there are certain things when I'm working in the capacity of my organization that I, I don't want to say I can't do or say, but it's, um, I'm there to do a very particular thing and I'm not being paid to give my personal opinions on things, even though on many topics we work with, I do have very strong personal opinions and beliefs, but I'm there to fulfill the work of the organization. To me, this comes back to feeling empathy and just caring about the people that you are serving. Mm -hmm. And if you can care about them and care about their beliefs, care about their purposes, their values, you can better serve them and you can write better because, because of that motivation. Yeah, so I'm there I'm there to fulfill a very particular role. And at first I found that limiting because it meant having to sort of put a lid on, <laughs> you know, certain things that I thought or expressing certain things. But it's actually taught me now to really be aware of who my who I'm speaking to. And that's been really beneficial when I do my own personal writing because I've been able to think more strategically about, okay. What am I actually here to do and to say? Who's listening? And what's my role? Um, so kind of looking at it from that angle might be a strategy to, to address this particular challenge. And Sarah, your, um, your strategy of thinking about empathy and who you're there, who you're serving and what your role is more in the context of service is also a way, I think, to bring meaning into what at times can feel a little bit more like arm's length writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Let's talk about our fourth challenge. Yeah, so this challenge has to do with um, balancing other writing projects with work-related writing. So, you know, if if you're, they always say that Kafka was an insurance salesman and he would come home and write all of his genius works in the evenings and that was kind of his um break or whatever from the workaday life. Well, if your work revolves around writing, it's really hard to come home and then do your own writing. So how do you balance all of these different forms of writing and the limited creative energy, not to mention time, that you might have? How does this work for you, Sarah? For me, I find that my work writing tends to be very low creativity. With some exceptions, I've been doing some very creative collaborative writing with my colleagues. But generally, my work writing is not something that it feels creatively generative. I'm not developing huge ideas with the particular writing that I'm doing. And so I find that it's, it doesn't have to be a a big burden. It's, I I don't find that it um, lessens my ability to do the writing that I do. But I think though, for people like maybe someone like you who is a communications coordinator, you're doing so much more writing in your job that it can be, it can feel difficult to also do personal writing. Yeah. And it, that's part of it. And it's also like the, it's not just the time that's spent writing. It's the time that's spent strategizing and conceptualizing. Mm-hmm. That's that, that to me is the thing. It's not the actual putting the words down onto the paper, but it's the, like the development of ideas. And since most of the writing that I do, that's explicitly part of my job is not developing ideas. It's not strategic. Well, it's it's strategic, strategic. but it's not. Yeah, but it's it's just not creatively generative. Um, It's not hard in that kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, I I face this a lot. um, And one of the ways that I deal with this or will deal with it better moving forward (laughs) is uh, dialing back my expectations on my personal writing. So it's not to say that 
I want my personal writing to become less important, but it's about kind of rearranging the furniture of what I want, the role that I want my personal writing to fit in my daily life. So things like, you know, not um, accepting a book deadline with a very, very short timeline while I'm working full time. It's my own fault. It's my own fault. Um, Don't have an insanely short book deadline while you're while you're doing a lot of writing for your job and your job depends on writing. Um, But that aside, you know, aiming for longer deadlines and thinking more about slow and steady progress, um, making the most of short bursts. I actually do some of my free writing and personal writing on my commutes to and from work. I do that on my tablet. And I also um, polish, you know, previously written things on my commute so that they're ready to go for blog post form or whatever later. Um, But I mean, the other thing is don't expect to do deep work in your professional writing and then deep work in your personal writing on the same day. It's just not Mm -hmm. a sustainable combination. (laughs) You might go back to my strategy that I've been doing since the fall of having a weekly writing retreat day. And that just means a day that I don't schedule things and I just stay at my house and write on my book rather than all the other writing things that I do. Yeah. Or I was just, before we recorded this, I just had a call with a client. I do um, some writing coaching on the side and I really love this client. She's, she doesn't think she is, but she's like the queen of slow and steady. She has a full-time job too. And her job also is, um, involves a lot of communication stuff. So she told me, I asked her, you know, how have you been making progress lately? And one of the things she said is, well, I've been able to do two writing retreats in the last month. And I was kind of gobsmacked because she has young kids and a full-time job and, and family and all that. Um, and I'm like, where did you go? And she's like, oh, I just, you know, it was just an hour and a half, like two days this month where she, she writes like a little bit every day, but then she had this... And it wasn't so much the amount of time, it was that she left the house and she really got a lot done in the hour and a half. It was almost like a mental thing to be able to call it a retreat Mm -hmm. and know that someone was taking care of the kids, someone was taking care of dinner. She, yeah, it was enough freedom for her to, um, to really lean into the deep work. And I thought that was so great and such a key lesson that it's quality, not quantity. Mm Mm-hmm. I really think so. So let's wrap this up by returning to our initial thought of finding our why. Find your why. And this is a strategy that sums up most of the strategies that we've discussed so far. Yeah, I mean, just like anything else in life, I think you have to know why you're doing what you're doing and what your own personal purpose is behind it in order to be able to think about more granular strategies. For example, you know, when... When you come up against, I mentioned, let's say your organization or company has a newsletter and it feels stale to you. The thought of having to write it every month just drives you up the wall and you want to spice things up. Well, when you're starting to think about that, you know, think about why you're actually here. What skills do you actually want to be developing? Is storytelling a skill that you want to be developing? Then find a way to bring storytelling into that writing in a way that's going to fit within your organization. Likewise, if design or graphic design is is something you want to be developing, you know, lean into that. Um, maybe strategic communication is an area that you want to be developing or fine-tuning. Like, 
find, my point is find things that are important and find your why and then find ways to incorporate them into your professional writing. One way of thinking about this is looking into the future in five years, in three years, in one year. How do you want to look back on the time that you're spending at your job? And what do you want to take with you? How do you want your audience, what do you want your audience and your colleagues to take from the writing that you're producing? What 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 body of work do you want to be building over the course of the next few years? That can help you hone in on that why. That's a huge question, I think, for any writer. You know, what is your body of work? Um, whether it's in your job or not in your job, like what do you want to be known for and what's your, uh, what are the things you want to be developing right now? So here's our question for you all. What is the why behind your writing and why do you do the kinds of writing that you do? Yep. And this is open-ended, can be the writing you do in your job, your personal writing. Why do you Mm -hmm. do what you do? Let us know. You can leave us a comment at writingonwednesdays.com Or you can say hi in our Facebook group, which is also Writing on Wednesdays. And now we've come to Tips and Tools, a segment about building better writing systems one small step at a time. This week, Sarah, you're talking about a transcription service that we have mixed opinions about. Oh, we do. We do. Um, But we use it also for different purposes. So I'm talking about TEMI or TEMI, T-E-M-I. And it is a automated transcription service, and I have used it for interviews that I'm doing for my book. It is one of the cheaper transcription services. I think it's 10 cents a minute, and it's only a computer software program. So this is not paying much more, exponentially more, for a human person to transcribe the audio for me. It's a software And for me, it yields a very solid, rough draft. And I think of it that way. I feel that when I run the audio through the system, I'm getting, I'm basically paying for a rough draft. And then what I, what I really love about Temi is not that I get a good rough draft, but that they have really solid editing software. So for instance, you can click and hear a tiny snippet of audio and fix whatever the word was. And that to me is the really useful part is I found it really easy to polish the transcription. So here's what I've done. I've only tried English and only up to two speakers. Actually, it's always been two speakers. And the audio that I've used has been better quality and worse quality, like in terms of were we close to the microphone or not. I also don't upload the entire recording. Um, I just only do the body of the interview just to save save a few bucks. But I've done this for quite a few interviews and have liked it. But Nicole, you've used it differently and haven't liked it as much. Yeah. Um, but just a quick tip if you want to save even more. if you If you are familiar with the audio editing program Audacity, you can along with cutting off any bits you don't want, you can actually go in there and use the truncate silence um, thing. It's like a you just highlight the whole audio file and truncate all the silences, and that usually brings interviews down to a more condensed, uh, Ooh, shorter... I'm going to try this. Yeah. I'm going to try this when I'm editing our podcast. I save like do that. 20 cents. Um, but <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> yeah, so actually, I think I might have told you about Tammy. Did I or did you tell me about it? No, I think I told you about okay. it. But anyway, I so I tried Temi first, and the first time I tried Temi, I had some pretty good success. It was from a talk that I gave that I was trying to do a transcription for, and um, and it was pretty good, even though the sound quality wasn't that great. And I started recommending it to others, and then I started using it for a few other different things. I've used it three times altogether, and the second two times that I used it was really not very good quality. Um, 
I was the only speaker and it con continuously broke up the talk into three different speakers. Um, and so I, I had to edit all that manually. The quality of the editing was really bad, actually. Like I was having to edit every other word. Oh, wow. And so I just decided I haven't used it since then because I, even for those two things, I, I just didn't end up transcribing those items because uh, it was not worth my time. So clearly it works better for some people than others, and I'm not really sure why. But I think it also works for different purposes because I have to have these interviews transcribed. And my options are me spending a lot of time transcribing it, me spending out of my own pocket a fairly good bit of money for a person to transcribe it, or being happy with a rough draft for 10 cents a minute and spending yeah. a significantly less amount of time for me to fix the rough draft. I guess for me, my experience was, and I've done... Um, I've been paid to do transcription before, so I have I ac have actual like transcription um, a transcription program on my computer. Oh, cool! It's actually less time for me to just transcribe manually than it would have been to edit that draft. That's how bad mm. it was. Wow. So, um, but I, in general, I think it it's made for interviews. Yeah, I think that's that's was. My and impression. I think that that was part of it. It it somehow thought I was giving an interview and I wasn't. So. so there you have it, a transcription <laughs> service with with mixed reviews, um, maybe different, maybe differently, maybe suited for different pur purposes. Yeah. If you give it a try, let us know how it goes. And now we've come to the update where we each share where we've been lately and where we're planning to go in our writing lives. Sarah, why don't you start us off? So I am happy to report that I've sent off my proposal to a reader, which feels really good. And I have a couple other things going on is that I'm diving into more interviews. Speaking of transcription, a lot more interviews to be transcribing in the upcoming weeks. And on the downside, I haven't been reading my synopsis and outline every day. And this is a document that I put on the home screen of my phone in hopes that it would help me form an everyday habit. And I'm really not an everyday habit kind of person. But I think because it's on my home screen, I have been reading it several times a week. So that's that's good. Yeah. I haven't, sadly, I haven't been reading mine as often as I wanted to either. It was such a great idea. And I was actually thinking well, about that I, yesterday. I think it's still working great because I'm still actually reading it more than I would otherwise. Yeah. Um, as far as my update, I'm still solidly in the, I don't really want to talk about how I'm doing <laughs> phase of finishing my book. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about my book, but I will talk about the fact that I'm going to my favorite writing retreat this upcoming week. Um, and I'm also getting to speak there. The The retreat is called the Ancient Faith Writing and Podcasting Retreat, and it's in Pennsylvania this year. Um, this is also like the big organization that my publisher is part of. So I'll get to see my editor there, which will, <laughs> oh, fun. <laughs> which will be fun. And um, along with lots of other people that I really like working with. And my the thing I'm speaking on is my sort of workshop that I'm heading is how to spice up your podcasting life. And then I'm also going to be on a panel with two other people who are combination podcaster authors. And we're going to be talking about how to leverage podcasts into publishable book projects. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. That sounds great. And that's it for this week's installment of Writing on Wednesdays. You can find show notes at writingonwednesdays.com and look for episode 21. If you're enjoying writing on Wednesdays, please share this show with your writer friends. 
And if you'd like to connect with other writers like you, join our Facebook group by searching for Writing on Wednesdays. The writing group is not going on vacation this summer. Uh, nope. You might... <laughs> You might also like to subscribe to my newsletter. It's at sarah-bariza.com. Remember, we'll be on summer break for July and August. Until next time, happy writing. Happy writing. <laughs>